Welcome to CMS On Air, the podcast on migration, refugee, and population issues, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. This is Rachel Reyes, CMS's Director of Communications. This episode features an interview with Ron Nixon, a Washington correspondent for the New York Times, who covers homeland security issues. Ron has reported from Rwanda, Uganda, South Africa, Belgium, Mexico, Malaysia, Senegal, Nigeria, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. He also teaches investigative reporting and data journalism at the University of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. Ron is author of the book Selling Apartheid, Apartheid South Africa's Global Propaganda War. Among other topics in this episode, Ron and Donald Kerwin, CMS's executive director, discuss Donald Trump's executive orders, immigration enforcement at the U.S.-Mexico border, and the Department of Homeland Security, which, at the time of this interview, was still headed by John Kelly, who just this week replaced Ryan's Priebus as White House Chief of Staff. Now here is our interview with Ron Nixon. Ron, thanks for being with us. We appreciate you taking the time to meet with us. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what you cover at the New York Times and some of your background as well. Sure. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me. I am the Homeland Security correspondent for the New York Times. I cover the Department of Homeland Security and all things border security, aviation security, counterterrorism, immigration, uh, cybersecurity, uh, cybercrime. Uh, so all of those things, emergency management, that fall within the jurisdiction of the Department of Homeland Security is what I cover. Well, we could start talking about the travel bans, I think, because they're on a lot of people's mind right now, and the Supreme Court has come out with a little bit of a decision that the grandchildren and cousins are actually exempt from the travel ban, which I think is, is interesting. But I wanted to back up a little bit, back to 9-11, And the theme after that was that intelligence gathering, information sharing, screening, those had to be top national security priorities. And the U.S. was supposed to be at the point by now, actually, was supposed to have already been here many years ago, of having sufficient intelligence and screening mechanisms in place so that we wouldn't need to suspend immigration from persons of particular nationalities or religions. And I guess my question is, are we at that point? And if not, why not? Well, I I think it depends on who you talk to. You're talking to a lot of people in the intelligence community. They will tell you that our capabilities are much more refined than they were uh, around the period immediately after 9-11 in that you don't have to target specific like countries or things, but we have enough uh, capacity to be able to screen people. Uh, so you look at the risk of people individually rather than saying, okay, well, these people are from this country, so we, don't, we need to ban them until we can figure out uh, if they pose a threat. There are a number of things that the U.S. already has in place, like you, you've got the uh, visa security system that ICE runs, uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement, uh, their Homeland Security Investigations runs a visa security system where people get screened uh, bef- when they're applying for their visas. The same thing that the, the State Department, their uh, diplomatic security um, uh, special agents, these people, they do the, the bulk of the screening, uh, your social media, all of those things are screened before people actually get here. And just to throw in something, 
it's extremely difficult for people to get here from some countries anyway, even now. Uh, if you are from certain countries, your chances of getting a visa to the U.S. are, in some cases, almost impossible. So what the Trump administration is saying is that, well, we need a, a pause so we can vet these places and see you know, if, if the people who are coming are who, we, who they say they are. But that's already in place in, in these countries. And the question then becomes, well, if these things are in place, what more do you need? Because obviously if, if people don't have credentials, then you're not going to let them in the country. They're not going to be able to get a visa. I mean, so what is the additional vetting that's needed at this point? Because I thought we were already doing extreme vetting. Well, that's the question. Um, that I'm not sure that there is a, uh, at least I have not been given a, a clear-cut answer on what extreme vetting means. Because all, in addition to all of those things that I mentioned to you before, you know, national tracking system that's run by Customs Border Protection, when you book your ticket, they know a lot about you. Uh, before you even get on a plane. With some of the, the enhancement that was done to the visa waiver system under the Obama administration with the Republican Congress, there's more information sharing between those countries that we have people who don't need a visa to get here, but there's more information sharing. There's a lot more information sharing from other places like Iraq. Iraq was originally one of the seven countries and now it's six countries because they were saying, well, Iraq agreed to do all of these different things. So, again, I don't know what the additional steps that are needed. There is a report that has been done that has been given to the White House, but it has not made, been made public. I was confused about Iraq, too, because if you look at the infiltration of terrorists through the refugee programs, I mean, the two cases that are documented over the last decade are Iraqis. And Secretary Kelly then comes out and says that it's because Iraq now effectively screens its own people for admission. And I, I wonder if that's valid. And I, I also wonder about that rationale. I mean, since when does the U.S. cede its security to other nations? I, I wouldn't imagine that they'd say that for certain countries. Well, it doesn't um, cede its, its security to other nations, um, particularly for, for vetting and screening people coming to this country. I'm not sure where that statement is coming from or even, you know, what he meant by that because, you know, again, what you hear is that, well, we need these extreme vetting. The U.S. has a vetting system that is unlike any other vetting system in the world, so I'm not sure how much more extreme you can get other than perhaps not letting anybody come into the country because you do have all of these things in place that should, give if they are working, um, they should not uh, allow anybody in this country who does not need to, to be here. I think you may have reported on a government report that security report that said that there were 26 um, nations whose nationals were, quote, inspired to carry out attacks in the United States. Is that is that true? Is that? Yeah, I, I think it was a report uh, a few months ago that, that came out that did say that. And so you wonder why the six and not the 26, or actually I wonder why the six at all, since as you've pointed out, there's already extreme vetting and they already know who's coming in generally. Well, they point, sorry, the Trump administration points to 
uh, saying the six countries were, these were countries that were picked by the Obama administration, which is sort of true. It was, these were countries that were actually picked by Congress as, you know, supportive of terrorism. And so the Obama administration signed uh, the legislation, putting it into effect. It didn't really pick them. I mean, it was a combination of the Republican Congress and the Obama administration. So it's still a mystery as to why those those countries and their various theories that are floated out there. But when you look at a lot of terrorist attacks that have happened, particularly in Europe, most of those people have been nationals of those countries and, and not you know people who are coming there to, to do the country harm through the re- refugee programs, but these are people who are, are nationals. Do you have any predictions or a sense of how the Supreme Court's going to come out on this case? I don't. You've got a new justice uh, that more or less maintains the, the, the conservative balance, but presidents have been given wide latitude in the area of immigration, so it's kind of hard to say which way that they will they will go. It's interesting, though, that their instruction was, or or one of the statements was that the extreme vetting measures ought to be in effect by the time that the case comes before them. Right, right, which would render any decision moot then, right, because you've had this time, and okay, there was an injunction put into place, but now by the time the, the, the ruling actually comes down, you will have exceeded the time that you say you need it to to actually do the extreme vetting. So, you know, both sides sort of claimed victory in the decision. Kind of going to the U.S.-Mexico border, I know that you spend a lot of of time there um, and are an expert on that. And wanted to talk first about the border wall and the reaction of the Border Patrol itself to some of the ideas for the the wall. Mm -hmm. And as I understand it, some of them are opposing a certain kind of wall. If you could talk about what their rationale is. So the the Border Patrol, when they talk about what's needed, they talk about it in terms of legs. uh, And they talk about technology, physical barriers, and people. And so the technology are things like sensors and cameras and drones and and what gives them situational awareness of what's happening. In terms of physical barriers, they don't speak so much in terms of walls, but in terms of fencing, vehicle, anything that will impede the progress of people long enough for that third leg to happen, which is to to pick them up. So if you're in urban areas like Nogales or Arizona or San Diego, California, then they are... Yes, you do need physical barriers because you've got all of those people there, but physical barriers or walls don't make sense in some places. And so the Border Patrol is not advocating for a 2,000-mile-long concrete wall that's 30 to 55 because, one, they do want to see what's happening on the other side of the wall or fence of the border. I think what they what the Border Patrol suggests is something that both Democrats and Republicans have, have agreed on. You know, when the Secure Fence Act of uh, 2006 was passed, you had bipartisan support for that. So when you talk to the agents and the supervisory agents and the uh, folks who are in charge, that's what they say that they need, but only in certain areas. And they recognize that the the congressional mandate of no unlawful entries or the aspiration 
And that's one that the president picked up in his executive order, too, I mm -hmm. think, that that's not going to happen. Right. That's And so how do you measure success then? That's a good question, and it's a question that I've put to Border Patrol. I've put to other people who study this issue, former DHS people. And what I've asked them is, like, what do you mean by a secure border? Right? What does that mean? What does it look like? Uh, does it mean that no one will come across the border, which obviously is impossible to do? Does it mean that you know what's going on on the border, like situational awareness of what they talk? You get various answers as to what that means, and you know, different administrations have different views of, of what that means. So I'm not sure that there is one particular answer for what a secure border would be for certain people. I mean, obviously, some people will say, well, no one should come across the border. Well, obviously, that's not going to happen. You have 2,000-mile border with two countries that have you know, a long history, and particularly those regions where people have moved back and forth for, for centuries. And most of the newly unauthorized are not border crossers anyway. No, the most of the newly unauthorized folks are people who overstay their, their visas, which is an issue that they have struggled to deal with. There are a lot of reports uh, that migrants, and I take it others, drug smugglers and others that intend to do harm in the United States or bad actors of different kinds, can simply enter by ports of entry if they pay the right people. It's the, the fear of corruption. Right. Why isn't that problem m more publicized? Why isn't it a greater priority? It, that seems to me to be more of a threat than somebody trying to cross at a barren desert Right. I, I think that there is a recognition that this happens, albeit it's a small number of people within Department of Homeland Security. Late last year, I did a story about corruption within basically over a 10-year period, about 200 people working and contractors working for DHS took 15 million in bribes that we could, we could uh, track. Uh, for everything from drug smuggling to uh, letting people across. I do think that there has been a recognition that they do need to strengthen their uh, public integrity, strengthen their their internal affairs division or OPR, Office of Personal Responsibility, uh, now. One of the things, though, when you look at the proposed budget cuts, the inspector general office will have fewer people, If but the inspector general's office is the first responder, so to speak, for corruption cases. And there's a proposal to hire 15,000 more people, so you're going to have that many more people with fewer people to actually police what they're, what they're doing. I don't think it has gotten the kind of of coverage that, that it has because, one, it, it hasn't always been seen as a problem with the U.S. side. It's been corruption has, has always been sort of uh, thought of as, as being endemic with the Mexican force. But we never have, I say we, we as a society here don't really think of our border security officials that way. Are you finding that there's a critical mass of border residents who are resenting and opposing the kind of surveillance that they're under, those that cross regularly, for example? 
because obviously the president has touted the militarization of the border, and this enforcement takes place in the United States and in U.S. communities. You know, it's it's tough to to get a sense of, of that because I'm not there every day, obviously. But just from people that I've talked to, you get the sense in in some ways that it's just normal. Okay, that that aerostat that's in the air, it's just there, and so it just blends in the background after a while the license plate readers and and all those other things, it's just there. And so after a while, it just becomes part of the landscape and you don't really, really notice it. I mean, obviously there's been issues raised by like the Texas Civil Rights Project, I believe is one of the groups that have talked a little bit about this. The ACLU in that region and uh, particularly in the Rio Grande Valley of South Texas has talked about this. But just you know, in talking to people just day to day, and again, you know, I haven't done surveys or, or polls or anything like that, but just in the people that I've talked to, I don't want to speak for everyone, it's just something that's there, that you you just see it and it just blends into the background. Has the, the searches of electronic devices, has is that, is that raised particular issues for people? I mean, it seems that that's gotten a little bit more attention. than It has, but the, the thing about the, the searches of electronic devices that this is something that's been ongoing for years. I think it, it, the awareness has been raised of it because you have a president who's talked more about border security and immigration and crackdowns. But when you look at the, the, the border searches in general, I mean, the last year for the Obama administration was, was fairly high. I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it was fairly high. But that didn't start under the Trump administration. Obviously, this has been something that's, that's been in existence for a while. I think there is more awareness about it simply because you have someone who's made this an issue or the issue for uh, his particular campaign. You reported recently on officials at the port of entry in Hidalgo that found $250,000 hidden in an outbound car. And this is a big part of the border story that gets underreported sometimes, which is that the firearms and the drug proceeds are heading from the U.S. to Mexico. And they ultimately result in terrorized populations in Mexico and the flight of migrants to the United States. So I guess the couple of questions. One is, are sufficient resources being devoted to interception of drugs and monies going south. And and the second one is, it seems like we've heard Secretary Kelly, you know, understands this dynamic and speaks about it. Do U.S. enforcement priorities seem to follow suit? So the, the first thing is, are we, in terms of interdiction, their priority, which I guess are both related. And, you know, when I talked to CBP, uh, Fernanda Santos, who was formerly the New York Times uh, Phoenix correspondent. She and I did a story about all the money that's flowing south into Mexico. As you mentioned, this fuels a lot of the issues that we deal with, with the migrants coming here from Central America, primarily because of the money and guns flowing to those those areas. There are some attempts to interdict that money. But the priority actually is what's coming in, not what's going out. They do have these surges. I uh, witnessed one in um, Lukesville, Arizona. I witnessed one in at the Hildago Port of Entry, where they were at the far port of entry uh, in the same region in South Texas, where they were actually looking at money going out 
trying to find money going out, the, the car that you mentioned hidden in the bumper. But that's not, the bulk of the resources are for to track things coming in, drugs coming in. So, yes, Secretary Kelly has a grasp of this. I mean, he he was one of the reasons that we did that particular story because he had mentioned it so many times. But again, you you don't see a shift in making resources available to interdict that money going out. Now, there are some things that are in place, uh, like Joint Task Force West, which was set up by um, former Secretary Jay Johnson, based on the military sort of task force where you have all the military components, but in one place where they utilize what they do best. So things aren't stovepipe. Same thing with these things where they're looking at tracking. They're trying to destroy the networks and not so much go after people, but destroy the the money launderers and and all the other ways that people get money there. Uh, And then ICE has the bulk cash transfer center in Vermont that tracks this stuff. And there's a number of other things. For the most part, the priority is to stop things coming into the country. I wanted to just talk a little bit more about the corruption because you have, as you pointed out, major hiring that's being proposed in the budget. I think 1,000 new ICE personnel, 500 new Border Patrol agents. And I mean, I guess a preliminary question before we get to the corruption question is, are they going to be able to do that given the attrition? I mean, are they going to be able to bring that many on? And then, the, and then they're talking about actually waiving the polygraph for some of the corruption tests that they do. And isn't it predictable t- that there's going to be more corruption down the road then? I mean, haven't we been down this path before after fast hirings, large-scale hirings? Well, let me let me jump back to the, the uh, well, to the, the first to, yeah. uh, they're going to be able to hire. I'm not sure that they will be able to because they, they do struggle to to do this because there are a couple of things that, that happen with the hiring. One, unlike ICE agents, right? ICE agents could be in Los Angeles. They could be in D.C. They can be in New York City. There are no Border Patrol agents in New York City, so you're going to be in places that are probably not where a lot of people want to be. Border Patrol is actually on the border, and these are little small towns and, and a lot of places not much to do, so they have that going for It's pretty demanding in terms of being out by yourself and 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 to you know be perfectly honest it's it's really dangerous too because you are out there by yourself for for the most part and then they have competition from other agencies where well, why would I want to do that if I could go and be a secret service agent or if I could go be FBI or something or even ICE I mean border patrol loses people to ICE one, because ICE doesn't have that polygraph test that you mentioned. Now, this test was mandated back in 2010 because the growing awareness about the corruption within the uh, Border Patrol in particular. And so what they have done now is shifted toward, they're still giving a polygraph, but it's a different polygraph. Now, the guy who actually set up this program, James Tomjack, set up the program at Customs Border Protection when he first came in says that that is dangerous because the new test is a test for espionage, not a test for corruption because that's not really espionage. If you 
you know, if you help somebody smuggle cocaine across, but that's not really espionage. So, and he has shown where these tests have actually caught people who were purposely trying to infiltrate the Border Patrol, and they've managed to weed those people out. So he thinks that it could be dangerous since they've changed the test. He thinks that there, there's a greater possibility that that's going to happen because, again, the drug cartels, these people have billions of dollars at their disposal, and obviously if they can corrupt someone, they, they will. Uh, and given the numbers that you're talking about, the last time we saw a surge like this, you did see end result was there were uh, lots of cases of, of corruption. So I think that that is a concern. I think there's a concern within CBP, Customs Border Protection. But they seem to think that they made some modifications to this new polygraph, that it will still be able to weed out people, but speed up the process for hiring people. I don't know if that's going to be the case. Uh, I know uh, Mr. Tom Shag, uh, again, the guy who set this whole thing up, is really concerned about that. Yeah, and I, I was surprised to see, I think, in Secretary Kelly's report that the process takes, you know, 400 and something days. Yes. And that they're starting with uh, a bit of a deficit in terms of numbers. I mean, it's 19,000 something. It's not right. It's not what's budgeted. Right. What's budgeted is 21,000. And so they're already in a deficit. And if you hire these, you're only in some ways, catching up to what what the what Congress has mandated as as your ceiling, and plus you're still going to have attrition of people. Now a lot of the border patrol agents just go and work for customs. You know they change the green for the blue because it's uh, better hours, um, and you know you do your shift and you get to go home. You know with the border patrol that's not the case. We're hearing, and there's a lawsuit that was filed over the last couple of weeks about violations of the requirement that border officials are supposed to be referring people who request asylum or express a fear of violence or persecution in their home countries to a credible fear interview by the asylum officers that can then put them into removal proceedings where they can ask for political asylum, that that's being disregarded wholesale in certain places. There's been commissions that have reported on that happening as well. So that is happening, but it seems like one effect of the creation of DHS has been that the immigration enforcement agents have less of an appreciation of the benefits, the immigration benefits and the protection side of the agency than they used to when it was in the Immigration and Naturalization Service and everybody was together. And if that's true, I guess the question is, they're given more protection responsibilities. That is one of their responsibilities. How can you change that culture? And if you can't, does it make sense to vest any protection responsibilities in CBP and ICE agents who don't view their jobs as involving that? I mean, it's a difficult question because, you know, again, I I know of this. I haven't seen it myself, but I do know and have heard reports of this happening. I think that ICE agents and Border Patrol agents have been given, you know, more power in a lot of ways and things have been ceded to them. Whereas in the past, it was referred to attorneys at ICE or someplace who would kind of chime in and make the decision where now it's the agents that sort of have the prosecutorial discretion to do whatever. 
you have a president who's laid out in an executive order what his priorities are and did a piece on the the DHS being largely focused on immigration. But um, one of the things that Leon Panetta, the former uh, CIA director and, and secretary of defense said, is John Kelly is following orders. He was a Marine and he's just, just following orders. So I think a large part of that simply coming from the president himself and people aren't clear if they can do things like, I guess, what they would think would contradict with what the president's priorities are. Are you seeing any um, any signs of decreased cooperation at the border from Mexico as a result of some of the rhetoric or some of the enforcement policies? There's grumbling, but... I haven't seen decreases. You know, I, I was down in Mexico City in March, I believe, and was talking to some some former intel people there who still have ties within the government. They, you know, they grumble privately about the U.S. not dealing with the money and guns flowing into Mexico. But on some levels, these are relationships that have been established over years of of working together, and even if the people at the top may have issues, there is this tendency for the people who are on the ground to work together because you know there are like the task force down in um, El Paso, where the Mexican authorities have people there working with the the U.S. authorities. So I think that those closer to the ground relationships endure even as there are tensions at the top. But right now you do see Mexico pretty much continuing to do what it has done in the past. There's been a sense, and I think historically there's been a specific memorandum called the Sensitive Locations Memorandum within ICE that enforcement actions shouldn't take place at or near sensitive locations. Basically places where people's well-being or their conscience requires them to be. And yet there are increased reports, in fact, that that's happening. You know, they're waiting outside schools or shelters or other sensitive locations, hospitals, courts. Mm-hmm. Is this a new policy from on high? Or? ICE says that it's not because they, they're saying they've always gone into courts. So and courts are not listed as a sensitive location. Schools, churches, those places are and and the way that they're interpreting the policy is that they're not going into those places, but there's nothing that keeps them from being outside this homeless shelter or being outside the church, as long as they're not on a property. But if you're across the street from it, then their interpretation of it is you're not violating that directive. The head of ICE enforcement is directing agents to arrest all undocumented persons with whom they come in contact, that, that does seem at odds with the administration's priorities. Well, that's that's a, a change from the, the previous administration, which said that priority was going to be people who pose some type of risk to the U.S. And that was a directive that was issued by the head of ICE to agents in the field for two reasons. One is the, the grandma who had tent on her windows that was too dark and you get pulled over and you're found you're undocumented that the Obama administration felt that's not really you know what we want to have ICE agents go and track these people down 
the M13 guy, you know, the, the, the folks who smuggle drugs and the human smugglers, those people, those were the priorities. And so the, the residuals, as they call them, you know, if you went someplace and somebody had a, a deportation order and you went someplace and you encountered other people who were undocumented, then you simply got the person who you had the order for. The other person didn't pose a threat, so kind of left them alone. That's changed. Uh, where Mr. Holman, uh, who is the, the ICE director, says, look, I mean, if you run across them, they're fair game. So that that is definitely a change from, from before. I wonder, There's as I listen to Secretary Kelly, you know, he regularly says that ICE actions are about protecting and serving the public. You know, that's their mission. But you also have police chiefs around the country saying that they're not able to protect and serve the public if they perform immigration enforcement and they're increasingly being pressured and they feel in some places forced to take on this as a priority. How can that paradox or conflict or whatever you call it be resolved? You know, again, that's a tough question and I, I'm, I know I don't have the answer for that, but it, it, is a, it is an issue because for the local authorities, they're saying that, look, once a person has done their time, we can't hold them. ICE is saying, well, you need to hold them because, one, the best place to get those people is when they're already confined and it doesn't pose a threat to the public or to the agents at ICE. And so they issue these detainers, but detainers aren't legal documents. Uh, several courts have said that. They're not. And so the city's... Right, their voluntary request is like you saying, me saying to you, hey, can you can you do this for me? Uh, that's not really legal. Uh, in, in terms of a legal document, it, ICE has determined that, look, it's legal for us to do that because you want to get these people off the streets. And when I say legal, I meant the, it's not a legal document like a warrant. And so a lot of jurisdictions will say, look, if you have a warrant, we'll gladly hand the person over to you. That's fine. Because they are afraid that they could be sued for violating that person's constitutional right by holding them 48 hours beyond the time that they have served their, their time. And that is the, the issues. The cities don't want to open themselves up to lawsuits because, again, courts have ruled that detainer is not the same as a warrant. Um, and then I think ICE put out this report for a time purporting to show jurisdictions that didn't honor the detainers. And myself and a, a colleague, Liz Robbins, did a couple of reports on the flaws in those things. Because some of those, I know in particular, Minneapolis and my hometown, the, the Hennepin County Sheriff, took offense to that and actually held a press conference and showed a still of him handing off people to ICE, even though ICE is saying he wasn't being cooperative. And so you know, it's it's ongoing. I mean, there are some police chiefs and sheriffs who are like, hey, we're going to do this. There are others who are saying that we're not going to do this for the reasons cited before, but also because we're not immigration. That is a federal responsibility that does not fall on local people. We had the former head of the Executive Office for Immigration Review, Juan Asuna, here yesterday, mm -hmm. and we were doing an event with him, an interview, and 
we asked him about what do you do about that immense case backlog issue that you have. You know, it's almost 600,000 right. cases now. And part of his answer, it's a, it's a complicated mm -hmm. problem, but one of the main contributors to it is the fact that their resources just haven't kept up with right. the kind of resources of the enforcement agencies right. that are putting people into the right. uh, removal proceedings. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that, any kind of what's the solution to that problem? You know, again, I don't know what the solution is. I know that it is a problem that there simply aren't enough judges to hear these cases. And as a result, you have a tremendous backlog at the same time that you want to do more internal enforcement, build capacity to detain more and more people. But where are they going to go? And, and how do you resolve the problem of giving them their, their day in court? I think going back to the point before, it was something that I think the Obama administration recognized, and probably the Bush administration and the administrations before that too, is that ICE is always going to have a finite amount of resources. You can increase it, increase the size, add a couple of thousand more, but ICE has about 8,000, and you're talking about an undocumented population in the millions. You know, the math on that just does not favor the, the courts, because, you know, you got all these people detained, but not enough judges to actually hear their cases. You know, another thing he said I wanted to ask you about was that it's his sense that as um, the Trump administration faces increased difficulties related to some of its agenda, like mm -hmm. passage of health care, tax reform, whatever, that it's likely to focus more on immigration legislatively, that they have a a clear sense of what they want to do, and that uh, that will come to the fore more legislatively. I mean, do you think that that's a accurate projection of what might happen? I can see that, uh, because as I said, the article that I did last week was about how the DHS was focused a lot on immigration, even though it has this broad portfolio of things that immigration, if you look at the proposed budget increases, CBP and ICE, 21% and almost 30% respectively. Everything else was either barely moving or cut. Because again, it's something that you can you can show, you can you can see and when the president ran on these issues, that was the top issue was build a wall and talk about getting the you know the rapists and other people out of the country. So, I think it's something that it's easier to get the Republicans as a whole on healthcare is much more complicated because, you know, I was listening to this thing yesterday about uh, healthcare in Kentucky. Well, people have it and they like it. The fact that they can go and, and go see a dentist, that's hard to, to take. And even some of the, you know, the, the Republican legislators don't want to mess with that. Immigration is a little different because there is this sense in a lot of places that, well, you know, immigrants have just taken these jobs and that, you know, they're here and they're soaking up all the, again, the data doesn't show that. But there is that widespread belief that, and I think that's an easier target than health care, taxes, foreign policy, all these other things. I mean, immigration is obviously complex, too, but I think it's an easier sell than those other issues are. Do you have any thoughts on kind of the administration's ultimate plans for the DACA recipients? 
I don't. I don't know if the administration has an ultimate plan for the DACA recipients. The president has said, hey, you know, these kids, they're, they're great, and, you know, we don't want to be harsh and that. I don't think that they have given it a lot of thought. I do know that Secretary Kelly did tell the, you know, the the Hispanic caucus that, according to his talks with lawyers, that they thought that if DACA was challenged in court, that it wouldn't survive. I don't know if you can say that that's policy other than his view based on his talks with lawyers. But as a whole, I don't think there is a strategy for, for what to do. Meaning that the Department of Justice certainly won't defend it. You know, I think that that's the, the implication, is, is that they, they won't defend it if it does reach the courts. And what about uh, temporary protected status for some of the larger groups? We've done a statistical portrait of TPS recipients from Haiti and uh, El Salvador and Honduras. And what do you think of the long-term viability of those programs in the Trump administration for those populations? Right. Again, I think it's in in some ways the same boat as DACA. I I don't think that there's been a lot of thought given to it, given all the other stuff that is happening with the Russia investigation and all of those things. I don't think that there's a long-term strategy for it. I think people are aware of it. I think some of the his aides, Stephen Miller in particular, Steve Bannon, have probably given it more thought than, than others. But there's been a lot of focus on health care recently and, you know, the, again, the, the bog down and the Russian. So I don't think it has gotten their attention to the point where someone has sat down and said, hey, this is what we need to do. I do know that there's there's some talk of doing more criminal backgrounds and things like that on, on people within the temporary protective status. But again, I don't get a sense, just based on my conversation with people, that there's a long-term strategy. If you were to prognosticate, given all of the campaign promises of the president on immigration, what what do you think is likely to happen and what isn't? Of all of the things that he's... Well, I think that, one, something will be built. There's not going to be a wall, as Secretary Kelly and as the president recently said, from sea to shining sea. There's just not going to be a wall. I think that they will build out in places like Rio Grande Valley and San Diego region, but I don't think it's going to be as fast as they think it will be. Some of the time frames that they were given were pretty optimistic, 24 months, no. Because a lot of the land that you need to build the wall on, uh, particularly in Texas, which has like you know a 1,000 miles of the overall border, it's in privately owned. And so that condemnation process takes forever. There's still cases pending from the wall in 2008. I think something will be built, though, and and they will show that, you know, we're building these physical barriers. I think at some point you'll see the immigration policies, particularly ICE, probably become similar to the Obama administration's, simply because of resources. There simply aren't enough people and there isn't enough money to do all of these these things. Uh, and because of also pushback from more conservative uh, members who 
they came to Congress not to spend a lot. So they don't want to, to go renege on that promise. I think that the by the time the, that the Supreme Court ruling gets around to this whole vetting, that a report will be done in there. They will have to act on on that and not try to wait to what the Supreme Court says one way or the other. Because you're you're already starting to see bits and pieces of that. Like you see an expansion. It was the, the Hawaii Hawaii judge. Was the, you know, grandparents are obviously you know close family, and now you see even a more uh, expansive view of that. Like close family is difficult anyway. We we tend to look at this in an American or or, or more American European point of view, but in in a lot of cultures, that's just not the way family structures are set up. Everybody's a close family. I mean, heck, even you know people from the South, everybody's our cousin. You know, I mean, you know, I have so many cousins I can't even count. I was like, who is that person? Cousins you know? aren't simple. Right, exactly. Right, that's true. But it's like, which level of cousin? You know, first cousin, second cousin, third cousins. Those things complicate the ability to try to do it because it's not clear. It's not clear cut. None of this is clear cut, and I think that that's the problem when you try to simplify a very complex issue. I, I do think that there will be a push to do some type of immigration reform. Yeah. Including uh, a legalization program? I'm not sure it will get to that point, but I, I think that there will be something because you have to. The immigration system, the way it works now, is just ineffective. And I think most people will, will, will say that. And it can't continue the way that it is. It, 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 it will collapse under its own weight. And, and you can't just keep kicking a can down the road year after year. I think that they will have to do something uh, to do it. Now, will the base support that? Unlikely, but I, I do think that they will at least try to attempt something. Well, we thank you for being here. Is there anything else you want to say? Great. Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, enjoy the work that you guys do. The information is always useful. Look forward to seeing what else you guys come out with. CMS On Air's theme music is provided by Danny Duberstein and The Music Case. To get more information on CMS's research, publications, and events, visit us at cmsny.org.